Dr. Anthony Fauci and other top health officials testify before the Senate. Stay-at-home orders face legal battles as Wisconsin Supreme Court strikes its stay-at-home order. And the Cal State University system has announced their fall semester will be remote as other schools and universities debate what their falls will look like. This is America Dissected, and I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Are you guys uh, recording yet? Yeah, we're recording. Say something like, I'm Miles Hoffman, and I'm, uh, I'm X years old, and I'm in this grade, and I enjoy whatever. My name is Miles Hoffman, I'm nine years old, and I'm in the third grade. All right, Miles, tell me, tell me a little bit about you. Well, I make comic books, and I have a Game Boy. I like, for some reason, I like all the stuff from the 80s. Hey, man, you know, it's because, it's because your parents have taught you well. The 80s were the greatest time in American history. Don't let anybody yeah. tell you otherwise, except for Ronald Reagan. I know that. <laughs> so, so walk me through a usual day. What time do you start? Well, we start, we used to start at 8.50. Now we start at 9. And mm-hmm. it's like on Mondays, we have like Miss Elise, who's the principal. She goes in and reads us a book called Where Peace Lives. And then after that, we have like ELA. And then we have math. And then we have enrichment, like music or PE or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it's like we have a break. I don't know why, because right after the break, the school's over. What's um? What's your favorite part about about being uh, at school at home? Half days, no doubt. Oh, right. Half days every day. What do you think is the worst thing about about having to take take school at home? No recess. No recess. And what do you used to do on recess? I usually because we just got a basketball hoop, so I usually just um play basketball there. Yeah, but it's boring. Yeah, now you can't my, do that anymore. Yeah, but it's boring because. No, it's in my house. I can still do it, but... But it's alone. But it's still bo- so boring because usually I can't even dribble because my mom's usually on phone calls all the time. Oh, well, that can be frustrating. I can imagine. What do you look forward to doing most when we get out of here? I'm going to go straight to the arcades, straight to the candy shops, straight to everything except bad things, obviously, like yeah. gross restaurants and stuff. But I will go yeah. to fast food places. <laughs> What's your favorite fast food place? Um, five Guys. Five Guys is great. Do you like Five Guys better than In-N-Out? Yeah. So uh, what do you think has been the difference in your learning? Do you, felt like, do you feel like you could have learned, you were learning better when you were at school or do you feel like you're learning better now at home? Well, we're learning the same, but we're just learning, like we're just doing the assignments slower mm. it kind of feels like we're learning slower but we're learning the same rate yeah because like if it's like a math video we can just rewind and rewind and rewind so you can watch it over and over again until you get it yeah yeah if you had a choice to stay doing school like this or going back to normal school what would you pick school like this really actually no no school, going back school. to normal school yeah do you miss your friends at school? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Miles, this has been really helpful. Is there anything else that you think I should I should understand about what it's like to be a kid uh, during COVID-19? Yes. If you are an only child, but your parents have like, have siblings or anything, 
you do not know what it's like. It's boring. It's like you can't do anything. You uh, Well, if you have a pet, I have a hamster, you can, like, play with them, but you can't really play with... I can't really play with the hamster. Well, kind mm. of, because you need to keep her in the ball. Yeah. And, and there's, like, not much you can do. Yeah. So you're just bored, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry about that. Well, Miles, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. That's my new friend, Miles. Like most of us, Miles is trying desperately to find the silver lining in the COVID-19 cloud. Half days leave him more time to work on his comic strips, but school from home leaves him less time with his friends. As the barriers that separate different parts of our lives fall, and those parts meld together into one big COVID life, we've heard a lot about how parents are struggling to juggle school from home, with work from home, with home from home. Millions of parents are navigating their way through the second and in some cases third week of school closures, distance learning. Well, it can put the pressures on mommy and daddy. It's a lot. How do you feel about homeschooling? Well, not good. I'm not meant to be a teacher. But what about the kids? My friend Miles, he's one of the lucky ones. He goes to a great school. Well, usually goes to that great school with the means of facilitating online education for him and his classmates. His family has working computers and Wi-Fi. His parents work jobs that allow them to work from home to facilitate his homeschool experience. And he doesn't have to worry about where he'll get his next meal. But that's not all kids. City schools are also moving to online classes next week. But even the head of New York's public schools says some 300,000 kids don't have electronic devices or Internet access at home. In Miami, Mary Williams is racing to find child care for the rest of the week and beyond. Thank God I was off today and was able to come out here to get them something to eat. But for the rest of the week, I won't know. The American dream is built on the idea that with hard work and determination, anybody can make it in America. But that actually hasn't been statistically true for a long time. Researchers at Harvard looked at how likely it is for a child born in the bottom socioeconomic quintile to wind up in the top as an adult. And in America, that's only 7.5%. In Canada, it's almost twice as high. We've talked a lot about how COVID-19 has exacerbated the fundamental inequities in American life. But nowhere is that more stark than for kids. One in five American kids live in poverty, before the pandemic. What will that look like now as unemployment has skyrocketed? School is supposed to be that great equalizer, the resource that makes the American dream possible. But too often, schools have been a force multiplier on poverty, as low-income districts struggle to make ends meet, transmitting poverty rather than alleviating it. And COVID-19 may exacerbate those trends. We talk about it with Dr. Nikhil Goyle, an education researcher, after the break. Hey friends, if you're enjoying this podcast, I hope that you'll take a look into my book, Healing Politics. In it, I diagnose an epidemic of insecurity and the empathy politics I think we need to treat it. I hope you'll check it out at healingpoliticsbook.com. All right, Nikhil, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Really, really appreciate your time and your insights. Um, We're we're trying to understand what the impact long-term of COVID-19 and, you know, the crazy circumstances under which kids are trying to learn uh, are going to impact them. Um, What do you think the long-term consequences are going to be, uh, both on kids, but then also on our education system? Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, Yeah, we have been seeing uh, the devastating impact that COVID-19 has been having on schools, on families, and an entire 
communities. Uh, this came very unexpected uh, right in you know the last couple of months of the school year. Um, and we're already seeing uh, schools trying to adapt to this new era of remote uh, learning. Um, and you know, ed- talking with educators and other folks who have been directly impacted by uh, this crisis, uh, they will say that we can't simply replicate or try to uh, you know, bring about the same type of educational experience that we had in the physical classroom online. Um, and so what that means is you're going to be seeing major gaps in students' uh, learning over these next couple of months and then trying to salvage uh, whatever they can when they come back to school. And we have seen many states cancel the annual state standardized tests. Um, so I think, you know, we will, I'm sure we will see some of the impact in terms of educational outcomes uh, next year when, you know, if they do have those tests again. Um, and then on top of that, I think, you know, children are dealing with enormous levels of trauma and anxiety, especially children of essential workers, uh, trying to uh, grapple oftentimes with the illnesses of, of loved ones or even the you know, the unfortunate deaths of, of loved ones um, and what that means for their own education, let alone their own, you know, personal well-being. Um, so mm-hmm. I think we'll see, uh, uh, you, know, w- w- you know, we'll know in the next couple of months and over the next year what the actual uh, true impact will be. But as of right now, it will be obviously very devastating. How are teachers allowing children to cope with that? You know, um how you, how does a, a teacher in the classroom even begin to think about, or on the Zoom room, even begin to think about empowering a kid uh, to deal with their trauma? Uh, is there a way to do that 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 you know you've seen teachers use effectively? Well, it's it's very hard to do that uh, virtually. I mean, without that physical interaction, it's it can be quite quite hard to deal with the. The, the, and, and, and deliver trauma-informed approaches to learning. Um, you know, one of the models of education that I'm a big advocate for is the community school model, where, which uh, involves trauma-informed care uh, and culturally relevant uh, curriculum. Um, and that is very difficult to do online. I think the, the community schools, what they've shown is that when you have and you implement uh, approaches such as restorative justice, you know, looking at uh, the totality of a young person's experience and the harm they may have done to an individual or to the community, um, and recognizing the the past uh, difficulties or traumas in their own their own education experience, that is you know that is very difficult to do uh, when you are trying to manage you know hundreds of of kids at at one time, um, and on on top of that you are you know you're dealing with a situation where you know a lot of times school administrators or even heads of school districts are are trying to get the kids to a certain level as, as it might have been in the physical classroom, which is virtually impossible. You can't simply get those same outcomes. Yeah. Um, and I think we have to manage our expectations. We have to recognize that this is a, a very unprecedented uh, moment. Um, and we can, we can, and our teachers can only do the best that they can when, when, in the fact that they have their own families that they're trying to care for in, in this crisis. So they have two, two families that they're, you know, they're, they're being, uh, that they're responsible for. And, you know, of course, when we talk about, you know, Zoom school, um, it assumes a certain level of access to both internet and computers. And we know that not every kid has that. And also not every kid's experiences are, are going to be the same. We know that this pandemic has hit 
um, low-income people and disproportionately African-American people. And and so the, the, the knock-on consequences, obviously, you're going to see in, in kids. How, how does this exacerbate already existing disparities in educational attainment and access? Yeah, no, that's that's a really in, important question. Um, you know, we have seen lots of research showing the uh, inequities in terms of things like internet access and even computers in in, in households. Uh, you know, more than ten million Ameri- uh, American kids don't have access to the internet at home, um, and and that those numbers are often seen as underestimating the actual core of the problem. Um, so, you know, we have, you know, how are you going to, to deal with that when this crisis is going on for, for many months? You're seeing major, a major amount of time where kids don't have any kind of educational instruction whatsoever. Um, so I know a lot of school districts, for example, in New York City, they've been trying to deliver uh, tablets and other devices to, to families, uh, which obviously, you know, which is obviously taking a lot of time. Um, and even, you know, the New York Times was reporting recently how uh, a, a mother of many children was, ended up using some, some of her stimulus check to pay for tablets for her kids. It's going to reproduce the existing inequalities uh, that we've already seen in our mm. education system. And as a scholar of the political economy of schooling, I often look at education not as an isolated institution, but one that's deeply affected by our political and our economic institutions. And so when you think about it, when you look at it through that framework and the fact that kids are, you know, a, a significant percentage of kids, especially in urban school districts and, and as well as rural school districts are living in poverty and the effect that has on their own learning I think this crisis is going to exacerbate that, obviously, uh, in, in great ways and hurt their learning experience in the long run because they don't have the essential things for, for, for flourishing health and well-being, uh, a, a stable household, food security, parents with, with living wage employment, safe neighbors. There's a whole sort of confluence of factors that go into this um, that are being disrupted here. And, and it's, there's been a lot of reporting by, by journalists as well as some analysis by sociologists who've been looking at this crisis. And to me, the crisis is first and foremost revealing of the social decay of our institutions. You know, our public schools have always been on the front lines of, uh, in our communities, but they are, they are tasked with the burdensome amount of responsibility in, in this crisis more so by delivering, by giving kids and families basic meals. You know, kids would, would go hungry um, if they didn't have these essential meals and things like childcare for essential workers. And, and that, that brings us to a, a, another question, which is to say that schools aren't just places where kids learn. They're also places where kids socialize. They're also places where disproportionately low-income kids get many of their meals. Uh, they're also places where kids bust their stress on the playground or with their friends. And that's gone away. Uh, and you can't, you can't replicate that on, on Zoom school. How, how is that impacting our kids and, and what their long-term memories of this and the consequences might be? Well, I think to, to give one very good example, play. Uh, children's right to play has been severely disrupted. They're not getting to go outside at the same levels. They're not able to engage with their friends to, you know, play. Psychologists will tell you that play is one of the most fundamental features of child development. Um, and that is being 
derailed for many, many months. And what that does to children's motor skills and critical thinking skills um, and, and how they deal with and adapt to crisis or conflicts that, you know, that is being severely derailed. Um, and I think that, you know, we will see the long-term consequences of being sheltered in place for significant swaths of time. So yeah, you know, the, the effects, you know, school is not simply for learning. It's a whole, it's a, it's a place of, uh, it's, it's the anchor of the community. It's a place where people come together in a so-called democratic fashion and that is being you know taken away um so i think you know we will the 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 effects on children's development uh, i think unfortunately will be seen uh you know in the future you know one of the um one of the the things that uh that i've been thinking a lot about is is the way that we fund education in america and we talked a little bit about all of the things that a school adds and then also all of the existing disparities that a school can either be a, a help to solve or can exacerbate. But part of the challenge is that, you know, in America, schools are funded locally, usually through property tax and, and maybe some corrective state tax. Um, but what that means is that low-income communities tend to have low-income schools. And so when something like this hits, the communities who are worst able to deal with it personally also have schools who are worst able to deal with it. What does this moment teach us about how we ought to be thinking about our education system, both what it does and how we fund it? Yeah, so I've I've been a very strong advocate. I've written about this extensively over the years. The idea of a new deal for public education, um, as you touched on in terms of school funding, uh, roughly forty five to forty seven percent of a school's funding comes from the from the state uh, government. 45 to 47% comes from local property taxes, and about 8% comes from the federal government. So education is largely a state and local affair. The federal government has a very relatively limited role comparatively. And you know, recent research has found that uh, in, in 2016, uh, majority uh, white districts received about $23 billion in additional funding than major, uh, majority minority districts. You know, that is a major gap in, in school funding. And what does that mean tangibly? It means that districts with uh, predominantly African-American Latino kids and even indigenous kids have larger class sizes. They have less trained teachers. Uh, they have fewer books and resources, extracurricular activities. Their school infrastructure might be crumbling or not uh, up to the standards that it should be. They may not have the, the access to counselors and, uh, and trauma-informed care. There's a whole host of conditions that they are being deprived of compared to wealthy white kids. You go to the, uh, the richest communities in this country and you will find the schools have small classes. They have qualified teachers, often sometimes with master's degrees, even with PhDs. You have lots of resources and extracurricular activities. It's a tale of two cities. It's two radically different worlds. And obviously, what does that mean? It means radically different educational outcomes for those groups of kids. And so... In the urgency of this moment, we need a solution that matches the depth of the crisis. And I believe we need the federal government should take on uh, a much greater investment in public education to shore up the existing inequities that we saw in our in the districts uh, beforehand. And 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 we have the resources to do so. We are the wealthiest country in the history of the world, and deserves a guaranteed quality and equitable public education. And that is even more apparent uh, today. What, what's your message to, um, to 
parents and teachers uh, who are dealing with this right now? I, I would say, so first to parents, I would say, as I alluded to before, do the best that you can with the, uh, in the conditions that you have been stuck with. Um, you're not going to be able to replicate uh, the type of education that your kids were getting um, in the classroom. Um, so do the best that you can and provide, you know, try to explain to them what's going on, what's going on in the world. Um, obviously, there are only, you know, there's some things you can't obviously go into, but I think it's important to keep children aware of the realities of why they're being segregated for long periods of time. And then also to teachers, I'd say, you know, a similar thing in that, you know, there's, you should try to do, manage this crisis in, in the most appropriate way and, and, and realize that, you know, the kids are not going to be able to learn at the same level that they were in your classroom. And I'd also say that it's important to, you know, a lot of teachers unions have been, have been talking about this in the recent, in the recent weeks as, you know, some states have begun to open up their operations of business, what does it look like for our schools when they, if they're coming back, whether this school year or next school year, are teachers going to have the, the necessary protective equipment uh, in the classroom? Uh, is there going to be some level of social distancing? Are, are there going to be the, the necessary preventative measures in place to protect uh, essential workers like teachers? And so I think those are looming questions, and I, I, you know, I think there, people are organizing around those issues to to ensure that when we do go back, children and and educators are are, are taken care of. Well, thank you so much. I, I really, really appreciate your uh, your insights, uh, Nikhil, and um, we look forward to uh, to hopefully seeing you when uh, when this is all all said and through. Thank you so much. Here's what I'm watching right now. Dr. Anthony Fauci testified before the Senate this week. He had a dire warning. Even at the top speed we're going, we don't see a vaccine playing in the ability of individuals to get back to school this term. If some areas, cities, states, or what have you, jump over those various checkpoints and prematurely open up, my concern is that we will start to see little spikes that might turn into outbreaks. Meanwhile, Dr. Rick Bright, the ousted former head of BARDA, the agency tasked with leading edge biomedical research, like on vaccines for COVID-19, had this to say in his testimony in front of Congress. I'll never forget the emails I received from, from Mike Bowen and indicating that we are, we are, our mask supply or N95 respiratory supply was, was completely decimated. And he said, we're in deep The world is. And we need to act. And I pushed that forward to the highest levels I could in HHS and got no response. But will we heed their calls? And heeding their warnings may have just gotten a lot harder. On Wednesday in Wisconsin, this happened. Bars in Wisconsin were packed on Wednesday night. Video from this bar in West Dallas, a Milwaukee suburb, showed patrons huddled together and not wearing masks just hours after Wisconsin's Supreme Court knocked down the state's stay-at-home order. It strikes a serious blow at one of the most important tools in our COVID-19 arsenal. Considering what Dr. Fauci and other experts are warning, if other courts follow suit, how will governors protect their states if there's another wave? If you'd like to support organizations on the front lines caring for some of America's most vulnerable, donate to Crooked's Coronavirus Relief Fund at crooked.com coronavirus. We'll see you on Tuesday with another update. Until then, here's some helpful advice from my friend Miles. Play with your kid. Play with him right now.
America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Stephen Hoffman is our senior producer. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra and Sydney Rapp. The theme song is by Taki Asuzawa and Alex Sugiera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geismer. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.